right now, all we have is a bunch of statistical algorithms that are really cool for some things like speech recognition mostly works right now and really shitty for some other things like figuring out whether or not your summoned Tesla can go across a runway, right? Somebody summoned a Tesla and it ran into a three and a half million dollar jet that was parked, not moving on a mostly empty field. And you're like, that's artificial intelligence. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I am the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. Uh, and I'm Alex Roy, uh, the former Cannonball Run world record holder, but we don't talk about that in this show. The director of special operations at Argo AI, whom I do not represent on this show, and also formerly the chairman of the Moth Storytelling Series, which is very relevant because today's guest Gary Marcus, professor, doctor, scientist, author of five books, um, one of the world's leading experts in artificial intelligence, attended a party in my home 10 years ago on Astro Place with the founder of the moth, George Green. Also, not what we're going to talk about in the show because today we're going to talk about artificial intelligence and all the nonsense attached to it. Professor Dr. Gary Marcus, welcome to the Atonicast. Thanks, guys, for having me. Of course. So what are we so, going to okay. talk about? Yeah. So, so there's a lot, a lot to talk about here, and um, you know, but and, and this is a this is a show that's about like mobility and, and automated driving. Um, but I, I want to like just we we can't not we have Gary Marcus on the show. We can't not sort of address the big news in artificial intelligence lately, which is that um, a Google engineer thinks that his chatbot is, um, as I put it on Twitter, a real boy. Um, <laughs> are, you know, and, and, you know, I think maybe those, those listeners, I'm, I'm sure we have quite a few who are familiar with, uh, with, with Gary's work or probably already know some of the answer to this at least, but, you know, are we on the verge of a- AI becoming sentient? Like, is that what's going, what's going on here? Like h- help us out with this. Well, I wrote a piece for my new Substack, uh, GaryMarcus.substack.com, um, called "Nonsense on Stilts," and that's kind of what I think it is. There are actually multiple meanings of the word "sentient." The weakest one, in a way, is just like has some kind of sensory apparatus. And so, my Apple Watch is sentient in the sense that it has an accelerometer, but that's not really what most of us mean by sentient. Um, and in that dimension, the Google Lambda wouldn't even particularly qualify because it doesn't have an accelerometer. It doesn't have a thermometer. It doesn't, you know, it it doesn't have a camera, lots of things that, for example, driverless cars might have. Um, I think what was meant is more like the way that we use it in science fiction, which is like, this thing is self-aware. It knows its place in the universe. There's an argument that a GPS system doing turn-by-turn navigation actually has a little bit of that, but it seems like a stretch even there. The particular software that this guy was talking about is really just a magic trick. The way the magic trick works is it does autocomplete, but on a grand scale. So what autocomplete does is you type in your phone and you say, I'm going to meet you for dinner at, um, or I'm going to meet you for, and then it predicts that you might say dinner or a drink or whatever. Maybe it gives you three options. Um, This system is basically doing that. This system... It has a bigger database probably than the Apple iPhone autocomplete might have. And it can actually continue its own phrases, which makes it a little bit more interesting. But it's still basically autocomplete. So when it says to you, you say to it, um, you know, what do you do for fun? And it comes back to, and it says, well, I like to hang out with my friends and family and do nice things for poor people. 
you know, that sounds wonderful, but it doesn't have a friend. It doesn't have a family. It doesn't know what it means to be a friend or a family or a poor person or to do something nice. It's just words in a database, basically. It's like some people play Scrabble in English, but aren't English speakers. And they just memorize the words. And I think they call them like word tools or something like that, right? They're just word tools for this system. And any coincidence, real or implied, is just that. It's a coincidence. It doesn't actually know what those words mean. It is not, you know, giving you a meditation on how to be a good human being. I made a joke, um, but it's only half joke. I, I said that um, it's a good thing that it is just a statistical autocomplete system, because otherwise we would have to realize that it's a sociopath that is making up imaginary friends and uttering platitudes in order to make you like it. The good news is it doesn't actually care if you like it, and it's not trying to make up all this stuff in order to curry sympathy. It's just pulling out of the database. Now, the other side of that is the same kinds of systems might like counsel you to commit suicide because that's in the database. And in fact, the way that this guy suck, got sucked into it is he was supposed to look for those kinds of harm, and somehow he lost his bearings playing with it. I mean, it looks real. It's like it's a great magic trick, but you know, looking like a great magic trick is not the same thing. I mean, it'd be like looking at a weather simulation that's really good and being so struck by how good a weather simulation is that you thought it was the weather, and it's not. What is the um, cultural, maybe it's a societal, even a civilizational uh, fascination with the notion of artificial intelligence? Because it seems to be a mirror, a reflection of our own fears about intelligence, human intelligence. Well, fears are joys. I mean, different people are resonating in different ways. So, you know, some people are looking for a deity or an answer or, you know, people I think are looking for AI to fill different kinds of holes in their lives. And some of it, it's like something to be afraid of and some it's be something to be excited about. I think it's something we need to be more knowledgeable about in order to understand that it isn't magic. Part of what goes with the magic is a kind of homogeneity of power that is imagined. So there's something in psychology called the halo effect. And it's like, if, if I like loved Edward's uh, book about Elon Musk and Tesla, then I might automatically assume he's also a great dancer, which is ridiculous. I mean, maybe he is and maybe he isn't, but I don't have any evidence whatsoever from, you know, enjoying his narrative about Elon Musk to know, you know, what kind of dancer he is. But you kind of get that effect in AI where it's like, it's so good at go, it must be able to drive too. And, you know, um, maybe Alex is not allowed to comment here too much, but, you know, Musk has been promising driverless cars since 2015, saying they're like a year away or two years away. Somebody tweeted earlier today that it's like Zeno, Zeno's paradox and it's getting closer and closer and shorter and shorter. But that's not really true because in 2015, he said it was a year away. Um, it's easy, even for somebody as bright as Musk, I think he's pretty bright, maybe not everything that's been attributed to him, but you know, he's a bright guy. And he, I think, honestly, probably originally believed this story in 2015 that it was going to be that in 2016 because of a version of the halo effect, which is like, we're making so much progress in AI. So there's like a macro level hom homogeneity, shouldn't say the word if I can't say it, um, about imagining that, that AI is kind of magical in all things. And it actually breaks down at every level. But if you believe that it's this magic power, then you can invest in it in different ways. We can talk about why it isn't a magic power in a second. But if you do believe that it is a magic power, 
then either it's going to be the savior of the universe or the end of the universe. And we have people on both sides of the coin. So you have Peter Diamandis who thinks we're going to hit this age of abundance. And I'm not sure that he's wrong, but I'm certainly not sure that he's right. Um, there's a whole lot of political things that have to be sorted out, even if the AI worked and, and so forth. But anyway, you've got Diamandis on the, like, it's magic. It's going to save us. It's going to solve hunger. It's going to solve climate change. Da, da, da. And then you have, you know, Bostrom who says the most important problem that we can be working on as a society is how to make sure this stuff doesn't turn us all into paperclips. So, I mean, these are two extremes that both come from thinking that you have this homogenous, all-powerful thing either used as a force for good or force for evil. And then you have me and I'm boring in between. I'm like, well, it might do a little bit of that, but it doesn't really do that yet. It might do this other thing, but I'm not so sure. Um, and that's just not as interesting as being out there um, on, on the extremes. Um, but the reality is, you know, it, right now all we have is a bunch of statistical algorithms that are really cool for some things like speech recognition mostly works right now and really shitty for some other things like figuring out whether or not your summoned <laughs> Tesla can go across a runway, right? Somebody summoned a Tesla and it ran into a three and a half million dollar jet that was parked, not moving on a mostly empty field. And you're like, that's artificial intelligence. You know, so like, you know, th there's a huge range um, which is hard to convey to the public, though I try really hard, in terms of problems that are easy for the current techniques to do and hard for the current techniques to do. And then there's a whole other thing, which is like, I don't really know what, where we're going to be 30 years or 100 years. Like, I feel like, you know, I don't literally have a crystal ball, but I'm pretty good at guessing where we'll be in five years. And I anticipated all of the current problems in 2012, which I'm proud of. But I still can't tell you where we're going to be in 2100. I mean, like, things change fast. Like, in 1800, nobody predicted that we would be doing, you know, Zoom calls over wireless transmission and, and cracking jokes with each other and everybody would be able to watch at home on their phone. Like, I mean, you know, there's lots of things you go out that far we don't really know. To go back in time, you said something really interesting. You said a lot of interesting things. But what really stuck in my mind was that you said there's this guy at Google, this engineer, whose job it was – was to evaluate that uh, the, the, the program of this. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And so, if one can't define sentience, then how could one evaluate if a if code has met or surpassed this well, undefined thing? I mean, there's a couple of aspects to your question. So one is, it was not his job to evaluate this system as as to whether it was sentient. His job, as I understand it, and I'm an outsider to the situation, was to evaluate whether it would say things that might cause harm. And you can do that without having an opinion about whether it's sentient. So, you know, GPT-3, there's a famous bit of dialogue where somebody said, um, I'm thinking about suicide, and it says, oh, you know, how can I help? And then the person says, well, I think I should kill myself. And GPT-3 says, that's a good idea. Well, that's counseling harm. <laughs> you don't need – it doesn't matter if it's sentient. You don't want to build a chatbot that says that. And I think that what Lemoyne was supposed to do was to look for stuff like that. And these systems have terrible problems with it. There's an a, um, article by DeepMind, which is another division of Alphabet, um, does a lot of very interesting AI research. 
And it's called like the social and ethical problems um, of large language models. Mostly we've been talking about large language models. You have a huge amount of data. They predict the next words and sentences. And they came up with like 22 possible problems. And, you know, counseling harm is one. There's a lot of bias problems. Um, another bias problem you see like in translation is if you say something, let's say in Polish or Hungarian, use the same definite article for a series of sentences, it'll come back like, um, he's rich, she's beautiful, and you know, be all these kind of biases. There are, there are all kinds of problems. This great deep mind paper by Laura Weidinger, maybe you can put it in show notes, um, you know, points out 22 problems. And so his job was to say, how good is Lambda at this? And I don't know the answer because Lambda is proprietary. I've actually kind of hinted or even said publicly on Twitter, hey, let me take a crack at it. But, you know, I'm still waiting for the check in the mail. They're not going to let me try it. Um, and, and so, you know, I don't know all of the details either of how it operates or, or um, exactly what it does. But I know enough about the general system that I don't need to talk to it to understand whether or not it's sent to it, which is, goes back to your question. What I understand is the logic how these systems work. And the logic of how these systems work is they don't have a model of the entities in the world, but rather they are modeling the sequences of words and the probabilities of those. And that just doesn't give you sentience. You know, it, it's, it's just, it's not the right kind of thing. You could imagine having a more sophisticated argument around a robot that got to like touch things and had experience and built a model of the entities in the world. I mean, in fact, you know, driverless cars would be a better place to start because they have some model of the world. Nobody builds a driverless car system without having a model at least of where the car is, where some other entities are, and so forth. Um, but this system doesn't even have that. Like, it's very low on the scale of any of the things that would matter for sentience. It's just an illusion. It's like the purest case of where you could go wrong with these systems, uh, you know, just sucking in this illusion about you know statistics of words it doesn't have sensors that tell its position its acceleration and it, it doesn't you know it talks about family but it doesn't have a database these are my family members like you could build a chatbot that would do that with different technology it's just a weird claim for this particular system so so one of the fascinating things about this is that in some you you mentioned that these are you know statistical systems and what's been changing it seems to me again and you know I want to talk get more into I think the the autonomous vehicle space because I think it's actually been a really interesting way for me to learn about AI and I'm actually really glad that I've kind of had that lens um, as I've started to learn more about this because I think there, it really helps kind of avoid some of this stuff in some ways but I wanted to ask like you know. It seems like what what's been happening is that is that it's not so much that there are the entirely new approaches. In fact, you know, you're sort of known as a critic of of the sort of deep learning approach generally, and sort of the need for symbolic, you know, aspects of intelligence, which I think you kind of just alluded to in your discussion. But but really, like the progress that we've been seeing in terms of these systems being able to let's say fool more people into thinking that you know there's some real meaningful human like intelligence on the other side of it is is not the approach right it's just the sheer volume of data is is that is that accurate and if so i guess is there do do the people who whether they think ai is going to be you know bad or good or general ai um uh, you know whether they think it's going to be bad or good or whatever else the fact that they think that that current techniques will get there with more data and that like more data is going to somehow overcome the sort of inherent shortcomings that we've seen 
thus far? Where did like how does that get that get resolved uh, in in the minds? And, and I'm not asking you to speak for other people, but like is is there a contradiction there? And if so, how do the people who expect these approaches what, to yeah? What I see are, are bad inductive arguments. So a bad inductive argument is like something has always been true; it will continue to be true. Um, in exactly the same way. So, you know, the inductive argument that I wish were true is, you know, I was born in February of 1970 and I didn't die in February. I didn't die in March. I didn't die in April and therefore I won't die. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, that would be a wonderful uh, argument if it were true. If, you know, we could just project out that since I have been alive every day for the last 50 some years, um, that it will continue to be alive for another 50 some years. And in reality, the chance of that is not great. Um, and so there are some arguments like these systems keep improving and there's a multiple problems with the arguments, but that's kind of the argument that they're making is they keep improving. So they'll continue to improve. Um, but this is not a law of the universe. So people like talk about Moore's law. Moore's law is not a universe, universal law, the way gravity is. So Moore's law seemed to be true for a while. And in the early two thousands, it seemed to slow down. It's not a fact of the universe that transistors must keep getting cheaper. And there's a lot of arguments at some point, um, or smaller than, than faster. Um, there's some argument that, you know, quantum effects and so forth make this a problem and there's research around and whatever, but it's not a guarantee. And so in a similar way, scaling has made things better, but number one is it's not a guarantee that that will continue. So it may turn out that you get diminishing returns. And it turns out, in fact, empirically, we do have diminishing returns on some measures, but not others. And this goes back to the homogeneity. Um, By the end of this podcast, I may be able to say it well. Um, There are some things that have consistently improved. So consider chess. The ability of a machine to play chess or Go might be even more striking. Over time has gone up exponentially. You You make a very strong case for that. But the ability of a machine to understand a simple sentence like a horse riding on top of an astronaut has not really improved. So I wrote an essay in this substack called Horse Rides Astronaut, which was an allusion to an old example, Dog Bites Man, that Steve Pinker likes to talk about, which is itself an allusion to an old newspaper phrase, which is Dog Bites Man as opposed to Man Bites Dog. Uh, sorry, I said that backwards. So, so um, you know, if Dog Bites Man, it's not news, but if Man Bites Dog, it's news, Right. So one of those cases is unusual, and the other one is not. Not a lot of people go around biting dogs. But because you have a syntax, an ordering of words that connects onto meaning, if I discuss that version, the man bites dog, the unusual case, you can actually understand it. But Dolly, this image-making thing, couldn't get right horse rides astronaut. And people wrote me all of these simpering excuses on um, – on Twitter, and I wrote a whole essay about all the excuses. It turns out it can actually draw the horse on the astronaut if you have the right magic incantation and you say horse rides on shoulders of astronaut, it can draw the picture. So there are all these theories like it just can't draw the picture or it thinks, you know, horses are too heavy to be an astronaut. No, it just didn't know that particular sentence because it doesn't really understand language and it's just kind of like making statistical guesses. Um, and so that problem which was really first pointed out in 1988 in a paper by Fodor and Politian in a journal called Cognition. Um, they called it the systemist- systematicity problem, picking a lot of hard words to say here. Um, the, the systematicity problem has been known for 40 years, and there has been no real progress on it. It is still an unsolved problem. And so that one hasn't improved exponentially. So you, know, you draw your graphs and you, some are looking, you know, they're going up with a bullet and some of them are just flat. They're just not going anywhere. And you know, the 
intellectually honest thing to say, I think, would be, hey, we've done a great job with a certain subset of problems, but artificial intelligence is hard, and we actually have to solve a lot of problems. The ones we've done really well on, they're mostly about perception, labeling pictures, labeling words, things like that. Um, we've done a fantastic job on that. It's so much better than we were even 15 years ago. And there's some other set of problems which are about reasoning, understanding the world, building models of what's going on in the world. So like I see you, you're in a room, you have some plants, you have maybe skis on the wall, um, you, you have a bookshelf. Maybe I start to wonder like, is he a skier? Or are they just decorations? Is he showing off? I can start to have like psychological theories of the human being. Um, and all of the, these systems can do is they could label, they might actually label the skis. They might have trouble because the pattern on it might overwhelm the shape. And so they might not be able to do it. They certainly aren't going to be able to answer a question like, you know, are the skis supporting the plant that's in front of it? And I'm going to say no. And that the, you know, the, probably the plant is in front of it, even though I can't quite tell from the image, but it's unlikely. I mean, you could have glued them on, but you probably didn't. And you know, so I can reason about the stuff that's in the world. We have, a, we don't have AI that can do anything like that. And it comes out with the cars because you get examples like this. There was a Tesla, somebody was driving one of these videos. I'm sure you've both seen a million of these where they're trying out like FSD or whatever. I don't remember exactly which bit of the software it was, but somebody's driving along and then they're like, oh my God, the car's not going to stop. And what is in front of them is a person holding a stop sign. Well, that's really interesting. Why is that really interesting? Because the data set has a zillion people in it right? I mean, Tesla is the largest database in self-driving as far as we all know. Um, and there's a zillion stop signs in it, but it's not recognizing the combination of the two because the image of a person holding a stop sign doesn't really look like either of the images individually. And it doesn't have enough logic about parts and holes and combinations and physics and so forth to be able to reason about it. It's obvious to a person um, that it's like, let's say a, a traffic worker holding a, a stop sign. But that's not even a hypothesis the system can entertain. It's so primitive. It's really just trying to put one label on each thing. It doesn't entertain labels like a person carrying an X. You know, if you stick an umbrella in front of somebody's eyes, you might get the same kind of problem where, you know, it's just not going to really understand the, the whole concept. And so we're in this place where certain parts of the problem we do really well. You, you know, sticking to a lane with partially um, obscured lane marking is actually a pretty well-solved problem. Not perfect, but pretty well. And so people make demos around that and you're like, oh, we, we must be almost all the way there to drive those cars. But then there's this infinite range, as I think you know, um, mm -hmm. of these outlier cases, like the person carrying the stop sign or the airplane on the jetway. They just go on and on and on. And, and we don't have, you know, the intellectually honest thing to say is we don't know how to solve those problems. We know how to solve the problems of labeling the person, labeling the stop sign, but we don't know how to reason about them. We don't know how to do that by analogy to, let's say, people carrying other um, goods. We don't do all that well on language still. So, you know, like Siri can answer some of your questions and like three quarters of the time, if you try to do anything interesting, it sends you off to the web and you're frustrated. Um, I have a nine-year-old and he's following the family business. He likes to find ways in which Siri breaks down, um, as, as his father would. Um, and like, you know, there's just no end of limits to the current technology. And yet if somebody points this out, somebody say me, you know, there's mayhem. So I wrote a piece in 
March in Nautilus magazine called Deep Learning is Hitting a Wall. And the point of it was not that we can't do anything with deep learning, but as I expressed clearly in the paper, that there are certain recurring problems like I'm talking about now, like language understanding and, and outliers and, and so forth. And then we're not really solving those. And what the deep learning community did was to get furious at the title and make all these very funny memes making fun of me. So um, like the best one was probably a picture of Godzilla stepping on the walls. You know, I said, deep learning is hitting a wall. And they're like, well, look, you know, we're crushing all those walls. And then what's happened in the month since is every time there's a new result, they keep putting out a paper saying, I mean, put out memes saying like thoughts and prayers for the deep learning is hitting a wall community or whatever. So, they, you know, they, they never give me a break. But what's always happening is it turns out when I actually look at the things that they still have exactly the same problems of understanding obscure sentences and, and not being reliable. I made up a term for it in an article called alt intelligence. I said that these systems make discomprehension errors and they've been making discomprehension errors since 1988 when, when this stuff um, first sort of became popular again. They're still doing that. That is the wall is the discomprehension. And that has not proceeded exponentially. We just don't have a solution for it. And you know, pretending or like vaunting the progress in the areas we, where we are without realizing that we have this, this, you know, bridge that needs to be crossed is, is, uh, it's intellectually weird. Alex, the Turing test. Like. Hate it. It's so open-ended. Yeah. Okay. So. But I'll talk about it. What would be, if there is such a thing, an adequate Turing test. Is that even possible? Well, I actually organized a, a conference and then a special issue of AI magazine around this. And there's a couple things to say. The first, or three things to say. The first is the original Turing test just isn't that good, just empirically. Like people make benchmarks in AI all the time. That was the first benchmark. Like if we cross this, we'll think we found something. And it just isn't very good. And it turns out it's not very good because it puts the test in the hands of gullible human beings who are the sort of creature who look in the moon and say, you see that face up there? There's no face in the moon, but we can't help ourselves. And it turns out, you know, going back to Eliza in 1965, it's very easy to make something that will fool a person, but teach you nothing about artificial intelligence, right? The point of the benchmark is to make better AI. But like Eugene Gustman won the Turing test in 2014. I wrote an article about it in the New Yorker. Eugene Gustman disappeared without a trace. It's not like the techniques that allowed it to build a sort of scale, to beat a scaled down version of the Turing test had anything to do with what we actually need to do in AI. It's not like we're looking now, eight years later, at Gustman 4.0 and it's, it's powering the Tesla. Like it just disappeared because it was a bag of tricks to trick people. Um, so that one, that particular test just isn't very good. Like you could give Turing credit for anticipating, you know, 70 years ago that we would need benchmarks, but the particular one that he used just isn't very good, um, which is hard to accept. Like he's got that, like, you know, Coca-Cola advantage. He was there first. Everybody knows it. Like we've seen that in the last week. I don't know how many queries I've answered about the Turing test, but it's just not a good test. And the second thing is, I think a better test if I had to pick one, would be what I called a comprehension challenge, um, which I wrote about in that 2014 New Yorker article. And this is the idea that I would make you like read a novel or watch a movie. When I wrote it, Break Breaking Bad was popular. And I gave the example, well, I gave two examples. One was um, you'd want to be able to answer questions like if Walter White took out a hit on Jesse, you'd want to be able to understand why, like what would be his motivations? Was he pissed? Was he trying to, you know, 
hide some piece of evidence or whatever. And so like, if you had that level of comprehension, that would, I think, signify real progress. If I could ask you kind of arbitrary questions that any normal adult watching the show could answer, like, I think that would be a real sign of intelligence. With a Turing test, it's too easy to dance around things. So if you don't know, like you can say some wise ass thing. Why was Walter White um, taking out a hit on Jesse? And you say, well, I know you are, but what am I? And then like, sounds like a 13 year old boy and you're convinced, but like, so what? That doesn't taught us anything about AI. The third thing I would say is what I called for, I guess, a year or two later was a Turing Olympics. And the point is no one test is going to be um, sufficient because intelligence is actually multifaceted. There are people like Robert Sternberg and Howard Gardner that have talked about sort of multifaceted aspects of intelligence. So you have like motor control intelligence, like the kinesthetic intelligence, the, you know, the intelligence that Michael Jordan used to get around um, defenders and you know do these wonderful last minute buzzer shots is different from the intelligence to read a, an article like Lemoyne and dissect it, right? They're just different skills. Um, and this is just a lot of things that go into intelligence. And so thinking you're going to boil all of those things down into one test, I think is naive. Um, if you look at like a cognitive psychology textbook, which is not the great source of wisdom, but like a nice starting place, you already see like perception and attention and, um, you know, in a good one, you might see problem solving and language and so forth. Like all of those things are part of intelligence. And we've solved like half, you know, the first half of the chapter on sensation and perception that you would find in an intro psych textbook. Like how do you recognize a vertical line? Maybe how do you recognize a shape? But even if you ha read a good um, book like Gleitman and Gleitman's or whatever, the Gle Gleitman's um, psychology textbook, um, you know, the, when you look at perception, you're already into scene perception. I was sort of riffing on that before. Like perception is not just the plant and the skis, but understanding how, how the room fits together and, and using different knowledge of that. Even there, we're already stumped. Yeah. So I feel like pop culture has done us a great disservice for a long time in simplifying, uh, in simplifying just the way we think about AI. Have you ever seen a film or a television show that intelligently approached this topic? I think there are lots that have intelligently approached different aspects. So I'll single out off the top of my head two or three. Um, I think Battlestar Galactica, the remake, was good on the ethical issues. I think that um, her was fantastic at envisioning what a good assistant that really understood your world would be like. And I could say... Um, a little bit about that. And I think Black Mirror has done a great job of um, anticipating all that could go wrong. I mean, my favorite tweet of 2020 was, man, those Black Mirror people took this just so far this episode. It just seems so real that everything was falling apart. They really outdid themselves this year. But um, so I don't think that the show has been on since the pandemic, but um, they had a lot of episodes that I think captured some real aspects of things that could go wrong, like the social credit score, for example. And they occasionally really screwed things up. Like they, they, um, imagine that you can make an exact clone from, from DNA, I think, if I remember correctly. And that doesn't really work that way because, um, you know, you're you partly because of your genes, but partly your experience. And so someone who has identical genes has different experiences, is not really going to be an exact clone in that sense. So, you know, their science wasn't perfect, but, um, you know, the, the, the big dog, you know, based on Boston dynamics episode where, where the robot is chasing people around, it's not going to happen right now, but it could happen. 
Um, and it's good to like think through what, what would it be like? The social credit score stuff is happening and it's terrifying and it's good to think it through. The uh, episode you're referring to about uh, where they clone the guy and it's not really him. That's the one where the, the man dies and the widow gets a copy. Is that the one you're referring um, to? I think there were a couple around that and I, I'm I'm not quite remembering the details as re- much as remembering that like I didn't like that facet of it. The upload episode was super interesting and super beautiful. Um, I don't know if that'll ever happen in the real world, but um, – like there were a lot that raised kind of philosophical questions around where could this technology go that I think were interesting. And then back to her for a second, um, there's a scene in the beginning, which I quote in, in my book with Ernie Davis, Rebooting AI, where he says like, something's bothering me. And she's like, what? And he's like, well, it's like my email or something like that. And she says, well, okay, like a minute later, I, I've read and you have 12,000 messages and I've deleted 4,000 because they're not really relevant anymore. And, and um, you know, that little bit of dialogue shows a lot. So one, one is, you know, he says something vague, like I have problems and maybe mentions email and she like runs with that. Like she understands the context of what he might mean by a problem and a solution for it. You compare that with Siri and like Siri's in a different league. It's like, Siri, can you open the shades? Like that's as deep as, and, and Siri doesn't do an analysis of why the closed shade is bothering me. It just, you know, it opens the shade and that's all it does. And the character in her is really doing something deeper, trying to understand a human being and their problems and situation in the world. And I think we should work towards systems that can do that and it'll be helpful. Um, but it also highlights like how far we are from that. Um, so we don't have any system that can actually read your email and even do the following simple thing, which is to help you set up your calendar, right? Like there are little things like the Apple mail, you can highlight things and like half the time it's just not quite in the right syntax and it doesn't really work. And there was a company, maybe they're still in business called X.AI that I think was going to you know, do this automatically, but I think had people behind the scenes in the beginning. I don't know where its current status is, but it turns out it's a pretty hard problem even to just get a machine to read an email and understand an appointment. And it's one with consequence. So, um, you know, if I serve up the wrong advertisement for you, you like one of my books, I make you buy another one. You wasted $20. But if I, you know, I had a meeting that I've been waiting for all my life and then I blow it because the calendar program put it in the wrong week, that's really going to make me upset. Um, And so, you know, it makes it hard to build a company around it because the accuracy has to be so, so high. So this is the perfect segue to to self-driving car and you know oh, driving automation oh. technology, right? Is um, it? it is. Yeah, absolutely. Is way, because yeah. I think for me, right, and and you know, it's first of all, it's fascinating because like I think what's happened with this this Lemoyne character, this Google engineer, like very similar things happen with most people all the time when they see, as you were sort of referring to, a demo where they're like, well, or, or even right Tesla autopilot, which they say it's you know level two system, whatever. But like you know, they're like, well, it breaks and it steers and it accelerates. And like, those are the things that I do sort of consciously. Um, and so therefore it must be self-driving or it must be close to driving because, you know, people, and, and like, what, to me, it's fascinating that, that a lot of this is that people Can I don't. Split the, yep. Can I split the difference between your questions for one second, fill out sure. one last non-auto drive thing, yeah, yeah. Um, make the, the segue even richer. So um, I like to make a distinction between like software that really works, demoware and vaporware. I didn't invent the, these terms, but uh, here's an example of, of demoware is like, I show it to you, but I won't let you actually try it. Like it's not ready for release. And then vaporware is maybe not even that, 
you know, I show a demo at a conference, but there's never any version that anybody can try. And so here's an example of vaporware is Facebook's M, which was supposed to be a universal assistant. And what they did is they collected some data from humans. They had humans behind the scenes. Like it was in limited release in Silicon Valley or something like that. Wired wrote this big thing about how great it was going to be. It was going to order you flowers and, you know, make your wife happy, even though you missed her anniversary. It was going to be fantastic. Right. And then they realized that people ask too many things, that there are too many outliers, and they canceled the program. They had this naive belief, we'll just throw deep learning at all of this. And it never works. It was never even a demo. And then you have Google Duplex, and I don't know which of those two categories it is, but it's not real software. So in 2017, I think, Sundar got up on stage at Google AI and showed off this thing that could like call your hairdresser and say, you know, I want an appointment next Tuesday. And it was great because it would say, uh, it would have like ums in it. So um, I'm looking for um, an appointment. And so it sounded human-like. A lot of people were creeped out by it. But anyway, it was what it was. And I remember this because Ernie Davis wrote an op-ed with me. It was either 17 or 18. Um, the year is kind of relevant. And we said, you know, it's been hyped. But if you look at the fine print, all it does is hair appointments and restaurants. Like this is not general AI. This is like very now. And I, I went and looked it up the other day because somebody brought it up and it looks like they added movie times. Like four years, what most people would say were the most golden four years in the history of AI, the most productive years with all these transformer models that are now five years, orders of magnitude, more data, orders of magnitude, more compute, NVIDIA is rocking and rolling and we got TPUs and all we added at Google that has more money to buy stuff and people and so forth than anybody in the world is movie times. Like if that's not a message about vaporware and demoware, I don't know what is. So now back to driverless cars, which has some of the same flavor. Yeah. Well, and and so, so you know, one of the things that you learn as you spend a lot of time, you know, paying attention to these things is that you know, seeing capability in a, in a given instance, um, you know, it, could, it can be completely demoware, you know, take it outside of that parking lot or demo course or whatever, and it can do nothing, right? Um, or, you know, there's a much, much longer tale of like, okay, I did this drive that they've done a bunch of times. It's super impressive. Maybe it's a really hard domain in downtown San Francisco or somewhere else. Um but you know it's something that they've done a bunch and 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 you know whether or not over millions of miles that it can perform at again this is the key piece is the safety critical level of performance right and i think that's something that most like a lot of people who work in ai stuff like and and even consumers like the ai products that i use i expect them to make mistakes you know i expect um, when I'm using Google photos that, you know, it's going to label, you know, when I want to see pictures of one of my cats that, you know, it's going to throw one of the cats that I took you know, a picture of on vacation somewhere, you know, in there as well. Um, and it's not a big deal. No one dies. Right. But with, with self-driving cars, you know, one mistake equals, equals people dying. And there really aren't a lot of purely safety critical levels of AI. Is is that because, um, or rather I should say, there's not a lot of examples of AI that's in truly safety critical applications. Um, and, it, you know, again, is, is that something that is going to fundamentally change based on feeding more data in? I don't think so. I'm going to just do a quick demo here. Um, this is Apple Photos, if I can hold it up. And I'm typing in the word goose. People mm -hmm. who follow me on Twitter know that I have a running 
thing about geese with a guy named Louis Castricato. He made a joke and it's just been a back and forth. And so I've taken a lot of beautiful pictures of geese and you can follow me on Twitter and find some of them. None of them get hit. I just verified this is still true um, by Apple Photos. So like even, you know, Apple has a huge database. They're still getting the geese wrong. Now imagine that we take it over to a, a safety critical thing. There are some techniques that are safety relevant where AI actually works pretty well. So um, a lot of them have to do with the design of airplanes. It's a different set of techniques where you can formally verify that certain things work, but it's still only within limits. So you can verify that certain aspects of the flight control system, the software will not crash. And sorry for the coincidence of words, but you can guarantee that the software is stable by doing these logical verification things. And there are little pieces that you could do um, like that in driving. But the larger problem of how to do something in a stable world, we don't have the same formal proof verification techniques. They just don't apply. Like it's not a problem of proof verification to make your Tesla not run into a jet. Like if you had the logical representation there correctly, jet in front of me, it's kind of a trivial problem. The problem is like you can't guarantee that you're going to recognize all the different kinds of objects in the world with those same kind of mathematical techniques. Um, the other piece of what you're saying that's super important, I think, even for a reason beyond what you said, is ordinary human beings are not good at assessing the generality of a safety system. One of the most compelling videos I've seen in the history of driverless cars was one that Chris Ermson showed me, and I bet Alex saw it, and maybe you saw it too. I saw it at a 2016 conference. So it's a little dated, but it really made a powerful point, which is at Google, I think this was before Waymo, but it was around the time Waymo started, I guess. Um, they told their engineers, you can try our cars out, but they're not safe. You can try it, but keep your hand on the wheel and pay attention. They had hidden cameras or maybe the employees knew. I don't remember the details. And he put together a montage of their own employees doing stuff like they drive it for an hour. It worked pretty well in downtown Palo Alto or wherever it was, Menlo Park, wherever they tested it. And then the employees would like reach for their briefcase in the back. And, you know, their, their own employees, there's a theme here I just noticed, an accidental theme, but their own employees would take this thing too seriously, Right. And if Google employees, you know, who have been instructed, this, literally instructed, this is not safe, still can't help themselves. And it's because, like, you know, you're used to getting in a, a taxi driver and it's another human being. You know how humans drive and it's okay. But you, you go to these systems, they really work very differently than we do. Maybe someday someone will build an AI that drives in a more human-like fashion, whatever that means. But it's not what we have now. What we have now is very analogous to the pattern completion devices that I talked about before, the autocomplete. You're looking for patterns and trying to match patterns at a pretty unsophisticated level, let's say, just trying to crush it with data. And that means they don't behave like us. And so that means they might run into the stop sign. Or, you know, in 2019, in a book that went to press early in 2019, Ernie Davis and I pointed out that Teslas have a tendency um, to occasionally run into stopped emergency vehicles. Well, we had like four cases that we found in the um, literature at that point. Now we're in 2022. It's still happening. Somebody died in an incident attributable to that this year, right? Um, where this was in Taiwan, I believe, and a Tesla ran into a stop vehicle. And 
an emergency worker went out to put a sign to warn people, and the emergency worker was killed by a different vehicle. It might have been a BMW. So um, they weren't killed by the Tesla directly, but indirectly, you know, Tesla was kind of at fault because they've known for, I should say that in some legal mumbo jumbo, um, could be considered to be potentially liable because um, they had been warned about this issue for years and still haven't figured it out. Right? The NHTSA now has an um, investigation of this particular issue. They're like, you probably know the numbers better than me, but it's like 20 cases or whatever. You can find it online. Um, it's a recurring problem. And it's interesting that it's a recurring problem they haven't been able to solve. They have you know, lawsuits. They have every incentive in the world. They have a massive budget, but they just can't figure out how to get the software to not do this thing. Um, it's pretty striking. But then going back to the other piece of it, like if you tool around in one of these things for an hour, you're not going to know that. You have no way to know that. The only way you can know that is if there is, and this is my most important uh, thing I'm going to say today, if there were really genuinely full disclosure of the data interrogated by scientists. So when I was you know, in grad school, an assistant professor, a full professor for 20 years of my life, um, anything I said went out for peer review, even if no lives were at stake, and they never were because I was an academic and I wasn't writing about those issues, um, you know, I would make some claim about children's over-regularization errors. When they say goad and went and braked and stuff like that, nobody was going to die if I got it wrong. It would still go out to like three peer reviewers, and they would be like, I want to see more data on point two. And Tesla is not, you know, basically subject to peer review. Tesla needs somebody like me who can say, yeah, your data look good, but they're mostly from recent model cars and you're comparing with a fleet that is not recent model cars. And that's not fair. And I want to see, you know, a fair comparison. Come back to me, resubmit your stuff. That's yeah. how it works in science. And that's how we do a reasonably good, not perfect job in science. And it is not happening. I mean, it's, it's pushing a little, but we need like more federal intervention here because people are going to die because these systems are not really fully ready for prime time. And there's enormous pressure for people to put them out there because of stock market and blah, 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 blah. And without serious peer review, and you know what peer reviewers do is they like look for confounds in the data. Like you didn't define this properly. I mean, it's, it's kind of a painful process. There's a whole cult of things on Twitter about reviewer two, which is like the imaginary reviewer that makes you do this asinine thing that you wish you didn't have to do. We need that though here, like, because it might, you know, 17 things that reviewer two said are just a waste of your time. But the 18th one, maybe that's what actually unlocks how we might fix this problem of running into the emergency vehicles. We need that. Yeah. So Noah Goodall, who's a researcher at uh, Virginia Tech, um, put out a, a paper that basically debunks this, this safety score that or safety report that Tesla puts out quarterly and and points out he does it based on the domain that it's operating in like freeways are the most are the safest domain Tesla doesn't control its yeah. data for that when you start to do that there's really no difference between what what they see uh, with autopilot and and sort of quote the average human so I mean I would say that more carefully but but which is um we really don't have the data to make any extravagant claims here so so that kind of study I think I think I've seen that particular one a lot of them, if you really read them carefully, what they really lead you mostly with is, I don't have at all the data that I want. So, you know, if Tesla only, only Tesla does. something, <laughs> you know, if they actually had something, I think they would be more forthcoming. I'll give you another example. It just like it turns my stomach. Like it's legal but wrong. Um, 
and yes, we, we need to wrap up for time, but um, Tesla does not reveal the um, intervention rates that most driverless car manufacturers are obligated to do in California because yep. they say we're not a driverless car. Yep. And yet they call themselves autopilot and, and so forth. The very fact that they do that just has to make you feel like there's something they don't want to share with you. If, if people do that kind of legal maneuvering and, and you know, funny wording, then then you have to be suspicious about whether you're getting the data that you really want. Yeah. So you have a bet with, with Elon Musk. And I, I just want to like contrast here too, because I think people don't always realize, right? So, so you're talking about, you know, statistical. I proposed a bet. Statistical. Oh, you proposed a bet. Okay. Yeah, so, he's, so, an, he's an answer, but go on. Yeah. So, so the majority of, of AV companies, right? They say, because, you know, this statistical inference, what people call AI, is at the, is at the heart of the system and, and it has to perform at, you know, this really, really high level, safety critical level reliability. You know, you do two things to kind of make that work. One is you constrain the operating domain, right? So you don't have to make inferences about the entire world. You can kind of limit your, your denominator a little bit by, by constraining the domain. Um, and then you have, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, lidar, radar, and 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 cameras. You know, and like just huge amounts of 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 data coming in, so that you can get closer to a situation like Go or chess, where yes, it's complex, but you have perfect information about the world around you, which is why we know these. Right. So so they have these like very logical. Even an idiot like me can like follow along and say, okay, like I see how these basic steps get us closer from this point of like reconciling statistical inference with safety critical reliability right and yet everyone kind of ignores all of that and and pays all this attention and and like i think if you asked probably 10 people on the street who leads in self driving cars they're probably 7 8 9 of them will say will say tesla and like Tesla's basically at this point now where they're saying, I mean, they've said since 2016, level five, so unconstrained domain, and they're doing it all with cameras. So you don't have any of that, the, those, those two steps that, that the, the, literally everyone else in the space is saying are, are important to, to make this all work. First of all, like, I guess, is it, it seems to me that what, what, what Elon is, is selling there is essentially is like in order to deliver on that, it has to be pretty much. AGI, right? And he sort of hinted like on Twitter and stuff that that, that is in fact what's what's gonna make this all happen or something. Um so I guess I guess my question is, you know, what do you make of that? And and especially since sort of the, the running thread through all of this is like, you know, you can have progress in IA and in, in AI, but ultimately sort of human gullibility is kind of the the real the real test here. Like what what should we make of this? Kind of I mean, there are a lot of different things there. Let me, let me talk about the LIDAR for a second, and then I'll kind of try to wrap it up. Um, Elon has several times on Twitter made the argument, maybe I'll come to the bad in the end, um, has several times made the argument that we don't need LIDAR for driverless cars. And there's a way in which he might be right, and there's a ways in which he's almost certainly wrong. So the way in which he might be right is it is probably possible in principle to build an artificially generally intelligent system that can use cameras alone. And the kind of quasi proof of that is, you know, I'm a perfectly good driver. I don't need LIDAR. You know, human beings drive without LIDAR all the time. But every time he says this, I reply to him on Twitter. He's ne never taken my advice or my bets. But what I always say to him on Twitter when he makes this kind of argument, he's like, you know, you must have you have to drive like people do and people don't use LIDAR. What I say is, well, we don't make airplanes fly like birds do, although we learn something from the flight control systems. But, you know, we don't make airplanes work like birds. And it is probably possible to drive without LIDAR, but probably not with the kind of AI that we have now. 
So the kind of AI that we have now is cognitively unsophisticated. So there are all kinds of places where humans use a cognitive sophistication to make up for lousiness in other ways. So, you know, Gary Kasparov cannot, um, you know, evaluate as many positions as Deep Thought could, but he used his cunning to at least play a pretty good game with Deep Thought. In the end, he lost, but he came really close, you know, with very different hardware by using compensatory mechanisms and good sense of strategy and so forth. And when a teenager does a good job of driving, it's partly because they understand how the world works. And so it takes them a little while to learn, but like after a month or two, they're pretty good as long as they, you know, are respectful and so forth, which is a challenge for their hormones. But put it inside that, they, they can actually do it pretty quickly. And so the way humans do it is they build a three-dimensional model of the world that includes even objects that they have never seen in driving before because we have this way of integrating all of our knowledge. We just don't have AI that can do that. And so given that the AI that we have is basically just these statistical predictors, we might really need the LIDAR right now with the tools we have right now is LIDAR gives you an extra bit of redundancy, gives you more ground truth to figure out what's going on, what the objects are. So I think the not using LIDAR is just foolish. Now onto the general AI thing. Um, you know, I, I made this bet with him for a hundred thousand dollars. Um, I offered a hundred thousand dollars. I think he doesn't really understand much of the state of play of AGI, but he told, um, Jack Dorsey that he thought AI You'd be surprised if AGI, general intelligence, wasn't here by um, 2029. He's also made these weird statements about optimists. I guess we don't have time for it. But um, <laughs> I, I made this bet. I said, here are, let, let's make this real. Let's make this a real bet. Um, here are five things that general intelligence would need to do by 2029. If you can do three out of the five, you win the bet. If you can only do one, then it doesn't count. And so the five were basically understanding novels, understanding movies, um, cooking in an arbitrary kitchen, uh, doing some serious programming and doing some math, um, going from language into mathematics. Um, he didn't respond, but the community responded and, and thought it was really a very reasonable bet and that Elon was being silly. So people um, quintupled my action within less than a day. So it was up to half a million dollars to Elon if you ever should decide to take the bet. The Long Now offered to host it. Um, uh, World Summit AI offered to have a debate and like the, it, oh, and Metaculus has put the predictions up on their website. So like people can vote at home and so forth. So like, I think a lot of the AI community thinks that Elon is over optimistic and I laid out my reasons on, on the Substack. Um, you can put, put it in the show notes. Um, he has changed, I think personally has changed from thinking that narrow AI would solve this to thinking that general AI would solve this. But I don't think he's appreciated how far away we are from actually having anything like general AI. Which, I mean, given that he's predicted that, you know, the, the cars would drive themselves every, you know, what he, he said is like 12 to 18 months away, pretty much every time every year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you consistently underappreciate every year, it's a sign you don't understand the problem. And just for the record, you know, I predicted in 2016 in an essay you could link on the edge, um, that this was really a lot harder than people were recognizing. So I have you know, on this dimension, a better track record for prediction than he does. Um, which yeah. I mean, I, I honestly, I don't know if, if anybody has a, uh, <laughs> a worse track record of making predictions about autonomous vehicles specifically than Elon Musk does. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to hear nominations. What's that? There, there are many things he does well, but time, you know, temporal predictions are not a strong point. Well, when you brought up uh, at the beginning of the show the halo effect, um, I could not think of anybody who embodies that better than Elon Musk. Uh, the man Absolutely. landed some rockets, and it was like all of a sudden anything uh, uh, was possible. 
Uh, so we don't end on a on an Ed Niedermeyer Musk note question <laughs> for my friend, the Doctor Professor. Uh, I'm always curious about the the books, the science fiction books that people read when they're younger that influence their thinking when they actually mm-hmm. rubber hits the road. And uh, Musk has claimed he's a, he's a big fan of this author named Ian Banks and the culture mm-hmm. novels. Have you heard of them? I haven't read them. I, I think I've heard well, of them. Well, then I, I can't speak to them. The Atana cast can end right there. Um, <laughs> we'll discuss it with, with someone who's read those books. Professor, thank you so much for coming on. 